0: Well, I too want to thank Lynn. Lynn has just been a, been a joy to come and see you at work every day. Uh, I've told people before, this is, in my 26-plus years of ministry, this is the healthiest staff I've ever worked with, and uh, it's really a joy. We, we enjoy coming to work, and so we're grateful for uh, the staff and grateful for Lynn and look forward to Shelley's time with us. Um, we will not be doing Q&A today because uh, we had the opportunity and the privilege of taking part in communion, um, but I'd like to, sh- because we're going to go in some interesting places over the next... Uh, month here. I'd love it if uh, you have any questions today. You can take your Ask Pastor Brad card, which is in the seat pocket in front of you. You can text me a question, and I'll use those questions as I craft messages for the rest of the month. So, please don't hesitate to do that. All right, what should we do? What do you want to do? Isn't it interesting that uh, what we want to do and what we should do do not always line up, right? Sometimes what we want to do is not what we should do, (laughs) and sometimes what we should do is not what we want to do. When I was growing up, uh, long, hot summer days in Phoenix, I'd walk over to my friend Al's house, and I'd knock on his door, and I'd say, hey, want to do something? He'd say, sure. What do you want to do? (laughs) We'd then make a decision on what we would do. (laughs) What do you want to do? (laughs) Someday, uh, you're going to be at a Super Bowl party, maybe today. (laughs) You might meet someone whom you have never met before, and they might ask you, so what do you do? You'll then reply with what you do. You'll then say, what do you do? They'll reply with what they do. Why is it so important for us to think about what we do? Well, the reality is we do what we do out of the decisions we make. And every decision we make has consequences. There's no such thing as a decision without a consequence not one. Today, you will make over 35,000 decisions, and all of those decisions you make today will have some sort of consequence. So, what will you do? Now, the big question for us here at the church is, what do Christians do? Is what Christians do any different from what other people do? And if so, how do we decide as Christians to decide what to do? Well, fundamental to our next four weeks is going to be two statements, the first of which is this one We are not called to be effective, we are called to be faithful. We are not called to be effective, we are called to be faithful. And with that, let's pray. Holy God, we are grateful that you have inspired us and empowered us to do certain things. We're grateful, God, that in these things that we do, we don't walk alone. We're grateful for your word, we're grateful for the presence of your spirit, which leads us into truth truth is You. In light of that, Lord, help us through Your Word and through the power of Your Spirit to do what You want us to do. Amen. Our text today is very simple. Uh, You've heard me preach on it before. I'm going to preach on it again but I'm going to do so in light of this question of decision-making. It's printed in your worship folder. It's just one verse. So if you would take your worship folder, look at Ephesians 2.10, please stand with me, and we are going to read it. Let's read it out loud together, shall we? Here we go. For we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus to do the good works God planned for us long ago. You may be seated. Now, why in the world did we do that? <laughs> why did we stand and read the Bible? Well, the Bible is, for the church, the God-breathed Word, the Word of God. In our denomination, we say the Scriptures are God's perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct, and we talked over the last month in a series that I did called The Word, we talked a lot about the Word, the written Word of God, and we talked about how the Bible is different than any other book. It's actually a collection, a library of 66 books filled with all different kinds of literature. There's law, there's poetry, there's narrative, it's all theological, and it's all formed around a common thread of God's restoring His creation. And last week, and if you didn't have a chance to listen to last week, I I would encourage you to do so, we explored how all of God's written Word is designed to be read and and interpreted in light of His incarnate Word, Jesus. Jesus is the the Word made flesh. Jesus is what the Word looks like. Jesus is the lens by which we read the the written Word. And we we talked about how Jesus is God's definitive lens last word. God doesn't need to give us anything else outside of Christ to help us understand who He is and what He wants from us. And we talked about how Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is the exact representation of his being. We don't need to look anywhere else to understand what God is like. than the living word who is Christ. And my purpose on focusing on the word in January is because I knew we had to wrap our brains around what is the written word seen in the light of the incarnate word Jesus. What does all that mean about us making decisions? Because in March, we're going to start heading down a path where we really need to have wrestled with what is the Word, how does it affect the way we make decisions as we talk about some interesting things in March. So, how does God's Word impact our decision-making as the church? Now, to get where we need to go, I need you to go with me on a journey And uh, I I need you to imagine that you've been given a job as an actor in the Royal Shakespeare Company. Congratulations. You are now a member of the RSC. The Royal Shakespeare Company is the great uh, premier acting company in Great Britain dedicated to performing the works of the greatest playwright of all time, William Shakespeare. Now, to go on this journey, you do not have to like Shakespeare, all right? So, relax. To go in this journey, you don't have to actually have ever read Shakespeare. All you need to know, as you imagine that you are a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company, is you need to know that you are a person who has dedicated their life's work to bringing the works of William Shakespeare to life, all right? The news has come to us, RSC, that a lost Of Shakespeare's has been discovered underneath the demolition of a public works building in London. The news, of course, is a front page story. The news is the top of the hour newscast on CNN and Fox News. Lost play of Shakespeare's found. But there's one problem. What's the problem? Well, the problem is there's no fifth act in this lost play of Shakespeare's that has been found. There's no fifth act. Now Shakespeare always wrote in five acts. Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, Hamlet, all of his great plays have five different acts. This particular lost work is minus a fifth act. Now how in the world would you ever perform a play without a fifth act? A play without a fifth act has no ending. Now, Shakespeare didn't just write novels to be read, he wrote plays, he wrote narratives with a beginning, a middle, and an end. How will we bring this to life if we don't know what to do with the fifth act, because it's gone? Scholars across the globe are assembling in Stratford which is the birthplace of Shakespeare. It is the home of our company, the Royal Shakespeare Company. They've assembled and they're trying to figure out, what do we do with this? What do we do with this play that has no last act? One suggestion is hire a modern playwright. Maybe hire five different modern playwrights and they can each take a stab at writing a last act for this lost work of Shakespeare's. But that particular idea is completely nixed, why? Because (laughs) who could ever crawl into the voice of a 16th century playwright, let alone a playwright who wrote an iambic pentameter with a particular type of rhythm to his writing? Who, Who alone in today's world could crawl into the mind of William Shakespeare? Better yet, it is decided, RSC, that the first four acts will be given to us a community of people who have dedicated our lives to bring to life the work of William Shakespeare. What a task has been put before us. Our task is to immerse ourselves in the first four acts that have been found so together we might understand how to bring to life the fifth act. What Shakespeare has written in the first four acts will be then the authority for how we enact the fifth act. Now, Bible smart guy Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, argues the Bible is kind of like the church's first four acts. Those acts might be entitled as follows, act one, creation, act two, the fall, Adam and Eve's sin against God. Acts 3, Act 3, restoration. The birth of Israel is conceived. A promise is given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, The 12 tribes of Israel are born, and out of those 12 tribes will come a deliverer, a king, one who will usher in the the kingdom of God. Act 4, the kingdom come. The birth of the king of kings, the Messiah, the deliverer, has Come, and then Act Five, the church. Now we're in the New Testament, and now, and then of course we have a hinting, there's foreshadowing of the end, the return of the king. Now Wright argues the New Testament thus forms the first scene of the fifth act, the fifth act of the play, of how it's supposed to end. Thus we could say the church, we live under the authority of of the first four acts that have been written. Our faithfulness to these words are key to knowing what to do. Another Bible smart guy, Kevin Van Hooser, helps us see decision making this way. He writes, the church is a company of players gathered together to stage scenes of the kingdom of God for the sake of a watching world. Case in point. Uh, When I entered graduate school, some of you know before I entered the ministry, I studied acting. So I'm at this conservatory in Denver studying acting, and the head of the conservatory is a man named Tony Church, who was a founding member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. And uh, I walk into my graduate program not liking Shakespeare, probably like many of you. <laughs> I'd read Shakespeare before. I'd seen Shakespeare f- performed. It always seemed boring. I didn't understand a lot of it. One of the first weeks of class, Tony Church, who dedicated his whole life to performing Shakespeare, performed a one-person theater piece all about his life performing Shakespeare. And in that, he performed a number of pieces from Shakespeare's writing. So here I had a master, a master, of acting, taking, you know, like Bach (laughs) and bringing it to life. And for the first time, I looked at Shakespeare and went, I get it now. I get it. I know now why people think Shakespeare is brilliant. The reason is there were brilliant words, but now a master has brought those words to life. Suddenly, I was very excited about Shakespeare. Now, here's the reality of the world we live in. We live in the most biblically illiterate time in the history of our culture. Why don't people like the Bible? Why don't people like the church? Because they don't see it performed very well, (laughs) right? What they see is often an arrogant attempt, kind of like uh, fifth graders uh, trying to perform Bach at a school concert and thinking they're brilliant, (laughs) right? Is it possible? (laughs) That we, a company of players, could stage scenes from the kingdom of God with these first four acts. Now, hang with me. I need to take this further. Uh, in my graduate training with, with Tony, he directed us in a, a production of The Winter's Tale, one of Shakespeare's plays. And um, he gave us a picture of what it was like to be a Royal Shakespeare Company actor. Now, guess what? If you, let's say, let's take the the play Hamlet. Let's say we were cast in the play Hamlet. At first day of rehearsal, what would we do? We would sit down and read the play. (laughs) Wouldn't that be important? If you're going to perform Hamlet, you should probably read the play. (laughs) And then the next day, you know what we would do? Is we would go line by line through all of Hamlet, under the director's direction, looking at each line. Discussing together, why did the author write the line that way? What was his intention? And we would do this for weeks to try to discern why did the master write the text that way? Before we ever got it on its feet, we have to know the actual words that have been given, right? Right? Our task, of course, is deciding what to do with the words that have been given, that what is the author's intent. See, the Royal Shakespeare's Company's purpose is found in Shakespeare's words, not the words of the individual actors. You all have great words, that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but we exist in our analogy here to bring to life Shakespeare's words. Who are they? They are the Royal Shakespeare Company. Who are we in the church? We are God's masterpiece. The Royal Shakespeare Company brings to life the masterpiece of Shakespeare. But we are God's masterpiece. Now Ephesians 2.10 uses that word masterpiece in the New Living Translation. Other translations use the word uh, we are God's workmanship, uh, we are God's craftsmanship. The Greek Word there is the word poema, which is where we get uh, our English word poem. So, in one sense, we are God's poem. We are something that God has crafted in His people, something that only He could create, a piece made by the Master. Not just you as individuals, not just me as an individual. We are the masterpiece with the words and the people. It was God's intent the words and the people would together create the work, a peace formed by the Master, a peace only the Master could create. Why are we created? We are created, we are the new creation in Christ Jesus. We are not the new creation of Brad Kendall. We are not the new creation of whoever you are. We are not the new creation of Billy Graham, Pope Francis, anyone else. We are not the creation of either political party that you belong to. There are 30,557 words in the play Hamlet. Within those words, there are over 30 characters. Why does the play Hamlet exist? It exists to tell the story of Hamlet. If you are cast in the play Hamlet, you are in Hamlet. If you are cast in the church... You are called to be in Christ. Over and over, the Apostle Paul uses the phrase, in Christ. Uh, Think about this. Uh, I'll I'll explain it this way. Um, In the play Hamlet, uh, you're playing Laertes, uh, you're playing Ophelia, you're playing Claudius. But guess what? The play is not about you. It's about Hamlet. It's his play and his play alone. You take Hamlet out of Hamlet, you no longer have a play. The masterpiece that we are a part of, you have a different name, of course. Your name isn't Jesus, but we are in Jesus. We are in Christ. That's the work we are a part of. In the same sense, we are not the masterpiece unto ourselves. The Word tells us this, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. It's like saying, Uh, You're all cast in Hamlet. Now, you are in Hamlet, and each one of you is a part of being in Hamlet, but the play is about Hamlet. It's not about you. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We are performing the work of Christ. Take Jesus out of the masterpiece. There is no more masterpiece We have been created anew in Christ Jesus. So then what do we do? We do the good works of Christ Jesus. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus to do the good works He planned for us long ago. We decide what we do by being in Christ Jesus and performing the works He gave to us. How do we do the works of Christ Jesus? How do we know what decisions to make? Well, if you would continue to be patient with me in my analogy here, there's a great scene in Hamlet where uh, a company of actors come to uh, the prince of Denmark's castle. These actors come, and, and Hamlet gives them some counsel on how to perform later that day. He says to them, "'Suit the action to the word.'" the word to the action. With this special observance, he continues, that you o'erstep not the modesty of nature, for anything so or overdone is from the purpose of playing, whose end, both at the first and now, was and is to hold as twere the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her own image, and scorn her own image, and the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. What's he mean? What he means is suit the action, the action to the word, so that it's like you're holding a mirror up to nature. So that in the way you perform, you show what virtue is like, and you show what scorn is like. And in so doing, when you perform, you will hold a mirror up to the culture in which you live, And show them what is real. What does it look like? That's what good art does. Art shows culture what it looks like. Now, what's is saying? When you bring the Word to life, when you bring the Word to life, suit the action to the Word and the Word to the action. Church, isn't that what the Word is so longing, the world is so longing from us? that we would suit our actions according to the Word, specifically the incarnate Word, Jesus. If we would suit His words to our actions and our actions to His Word, we would hold the mirror up to nature. We would show what virtue is like. We would show what scorn looks like. We would, we would give an image of what is real. The great acting teacher, Konstantin Stanislavsky once said, it is not enough to parrot our lines, we have to live our parts. Think about it. What is the world's frustration with the church? It seems so often we're just parroting our lines. The world, God Himself, is longing for us to live our parts. Now, you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. Find yourself in that part, in Christ Jesus. If these words are true, what do we do? The same could be said if you were in Hamlet. Uh, What decision would I make if I was in Hamlet's position given these particular words? If you were in Romeo and Juliet, let's say I was Romeo, I had a dying Juliet in my arms and these words, what would I do? How would I honestly portray that? Taken in the context of our decision-making, how would we live if Mark 1.15 is really true? The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What would we do if it's actually true the king has come? What would we do if it's already been ushered in and the rule and reign of Christ is already present in our now? What would we do? what decisions would we make if we live under the kingship of Christ? What would we do if Romans 8, 1 is true? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What would we do with the knowledge that God is not looking at you keeping any record of your sin because of what His Son has done? There's no longer any condemnation for you, and you are free. What decisions would you make in light of that? Would you have some good news to share with your friends? Or let's say the king, the king of kings has spoken, and we believe he has. It's our text last week. He has spoken, and he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What would we do if the king is true, and that is what he has said? What are the decisions we would make? Let's go even deeper. How does the written word, seen through the lens of the incarnate Word, Jesus, Jesus in the flesh, how would that affect thinking you might have regarding the unborn? Abortion. How does the written Word, seen through the lens of the incarnate Word, Jesus, how might that affect the decisions you would make with your money? How does the written word seen through the lens of the Word made flesh, Jesus, affect decisions you might make regarding gender and sexuality? How does the written word seen through the lens of the incarnate Word, Jesus, affect decisions you might make about immigrants in your midst? How does the written word seen through the lens of the incarnate Word, Jesus, affect decisions you might make regarding your guns. Now, many inside the church and out would say, well, sometimes the Word is not effective for our culture anymore. Hear me. Those who are in Christ Jesus, we are not called to be effective. We are called to be faithful. Faithful to what? Faithful to the written word seen through the lens of the incarnate word, Jesus, the word in the flesh. The word says the ways of Christ are foolishness to the world. They don't make any sense to the world. That's what the word says. We shouldn't be surprised that the ways of Christ seem foolish. We are not called to be effective according to the world's standards. We are called to be faithful to the standards of Jesus. To the words of Christ. I like the way Stanley Hauerwas puts it, the most important task of the church is to be a community capable of hearing the story of God we find in the Scripture and living in a manner that is faithful to that story. See, this isn't play-acting, This is seeking to honestly live the words we've been given. If He is King, if He is the incarnate Word and He has spoken, we're called to be faithful to His words and His words alone. We are the theater of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are called to stage scenes from His kingdom. We are called to to suit His words to our actions, and our actions to His words. In so doing, 2 Corinthians 3, 3 will be true of us. They will say of us, you show that you are a letter from Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Shakespeare wrote, All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits, and they have their entrances, and each man in his time plays many parts. What part will we play? We are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus to do the good works He planned for us, long ago. And when you know who you are, you know what to do. Let's pray.